facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Tremendous Thursday to you. It is May the 25th, 2023. I'm so happy to be with you on this hour of The Kale Clark Show. And you can call in right now and claim your spot. 888-914-9149. Grab a line. 888-914-9149. It's always great to hear your hear from you via email as well. You can email me at kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com and follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark. C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. Now, I'm going to give you a bit of a palate cleanser today because we've been following, of course, the very distasteful Dodgers debacle, how they invited and then disinvited and then invited again the blasphemous, anti-Catholic, quote-unquote, sisters of perpetual indulgence. But I'm going to share the powerful deathbed reconversion testimony of a far a more legendary figure in baseball circles. I'm talking about perhaps the greatest player of all time, George Herman Babe Ruth, far better known by his nickname, Babe Ruth, and his return to the Catholic faith uh, very close to the time of his death. It's it's an incredible letter that he wrote from a hospital bed, and you're not going to want to miss this. I, th- I think it could be argued. Uh, I was talking about this with producer Jim before the show, that maybe the two best players in baseball history were Catholic. Babe Ruth and hammerin' Hank Aaron, who actually broke Babe Ruth's all-time home run record. Uh, he was a Catholic convert. I've spoken about that before on the program. Maybe the best all-around baseball player of all time, but that's a debate for another time and maybe another show. Plus, I, I don't think it's a coincidence in God's providence. I don't think it's a coincidence at all that on the very day that this controversy with the Dodgers broke out, and the guests that they wanted to invite, that when that all came out, when that all hit the, hit the news wires, on the same day, the body of an actual American nun was exhumed and appears to be incorrupt. And, and I'm going to tell you more about who she was later in the program, time permitting, but uh, do call in, 888 Let's get to it. The final testimony of... Babe Ruth. Now, there's so many things we could say about Babe Ruth. Uh, he he really was so such a, a seminal figure, the Sultan of Swat. Uh, not only uh, the, the monumental trade uh, in uh, 1919 from the Red Sox to the Yankees, the curse of the Bambino. They never again sniffed the World Series until, until 2004. They finally won another championship. They had won three in four years. Uh, with the babe. And, and then, of course, he goes to the Yankees. Yankee Stadium is constructed, the house that Ruth built with the short right field porch, and all the homers, 714 homers later, that the babe hit. And maybe none of them was more famous than his called shot, the time he called his shot against the Cubs in the 1932 World Series. Now, producer Jim really wanted me to talk about this. But, Jim, I don't know, it's kind of dangerous because, don't forget, I know you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan, and I know that because of that, it's kind of, because you're born in St. Louis, you, you kind of have a birthright. You, you have to hate the Cubs. But don't forget, the CEO of Relevant Radio is maybe the biggest Cubs fan in the world, Father Rocky Hoffman, of course. And uh, so you're taking your life in your hands here. But uh, there was a lot of bad blood between the Yankees and the Cubs before the 1932 World Series. And in fact, the Yankees were really ticked off because one of their ex-teammates who was now on the Cubs was a guy named Mark Keenig. And 
when he got traded to the Cubs, because he used to be a Yankee, the Cubs only gave him half of his financial share, his bonus for getting to the World Series. They're like, we're going to withhold half of it from you because you used to be a Yankee. And that really ticked off Babe Ruth and his teammates. Well, in games one and two, uh, the Yankees actually swept the series 4 nothing, and they won the first two games at Yankee Stadium. Ruth only had two singles, but he did score four runs. He was walked four times by pitchers for the Cubs. And game three in Chicago... Uh, the Chicago fans, some of the most passionate sports fans in the world, and I've been to Wrigley Field. It, it's an incredible place to watch a baseball game. They started jeering Ruth and the Yankees as soon as the train rolled into town. As soon as they got off the train, there were hostile crowds everywhere. In Game 3 in Chicago, uh, New York Governor Franklin Roosevelt, who was the candidate for president at the time on the Democratic side, was sitting with Chicago Mayor Anton Chernak, Chermak, excuse me, People in the crowd were throwing lemons at Babe Ruth from the stands, which was a sign of, not a good sign, let's put it that way. Uh, lots of trash talk, lots of abuse, not only from fans, but from the Cubs as well. In the first inning, Ruth had a three-run homer off Charlie Root. The Cubs were able to tie the score 4-4 in the fourth inning. And in the top of the fifth, the Chicago crowd was absolutely riled up because Ruth came to the plate again, the mighty Ruth. The count was two balls. Two strikes. Guy Bush was on the mound. And Babe Ruth pointed, gestured to the center field fence. And the next pitch came down the pike, a strike. And he hit it over the center field fence, exactly where he had been pointing. Estimates traveled, had it traveling at 500 feet. That was a mammoth home run and a famous, what came to be known as the called shot from Babe Ruth. Here's a clip. Historian Jim Beatty and some players who were involved in that game. Uh, you'll hear the voice of Babe Ruth's uh, Hall of Fame second baseman, Billy Herman, Hall of Fame pitcher Lefty Gomez, Bill Werber also. And check check out this clip here. It was a tough series. Both clubs riding each other, doing everything to get each other's go. Well, I was this one particular time when I went to bat. Charlie Ruth was pitching. Yelling from the Cub dugout was positively sulfurous as well as from the fans. They were, they were in on this. This was a Chicago crowd, and they were throwing things and yelling, and Ruth was standing in the batter's box, yelling back at them between pitches. And the first pitch ball was a call strike. Well, I thought it was outside and didn't like it very much. More yelling, back and forth. Strike two, more yelling. Well, I didn't like that one either, so I let it go by. Well, I stepped out of the box, and by that time, they were over there going crazy. The volume coming from the stands was so loud that some of the Cub players were running out of the dugout and cupping their hands with their mouths to make sure Ruth heard them. And then he makes his famous gesture. Well, I looked down at center field, and I saw it. I said, I'm going to hit the next pitch ball right past the flagpole. Well, good Lord, it must have been with I have seen the motion picture film, which they brought up, made by some amateur, which uh, seems to have Babe Ruth's arm in motion. I don't know whether he called it or not. Uh, Gabby Hartman was a catcher. He was right there. He knew what was going on and said, no, he wasn't pointing to the stands. He's pointing to the bench and talking back to the bench because they were riding him pretty hard. He just pointed two fingers at the dugout and said, that's only two strikes. He wasn't pointing. He was pointing to the dugout. Well, it made a great story. A lot of people have said he didn't, and uh, it's going to be one of those things for the rest of our lives. Did he or did he not? I would say he did. I saw him point the bat out. I would say he called it. 
but it would not be at all typical of Ruth. He was not a showboat. He let his back talk for him, and I'm sure he didn't call the shot. I will go to my grave not knowing for sure, but uh, frankly not giving a damn. I'm glad the legend uh, exists. That I am sure of. Did Babe Ruth really call his shot? We may never know, but I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. Well, not only was Babe a prolific slugger, but he was also a very prolific Hall of Fame sinner off the field, despite his Catholic upbringing. He was well known for living a life of debauchery, essentially living on hot dogs and beer. Every hotel you would check into after a game, according to his teammates, the bathtub in his room would be filled with ice and beer all ready to go. Uh, one of his roommates uh, on road trip said, I, I never saw Babe, but I saw his suitcase. He, my, basically, his suitcase was my roommate because he was out all night just partying, chasing women, and uh, generally living, as another teammate said, the life of an animal. But Babe came to regret all this, and uh, on his deathbed, he wrote a letter, and, and, it, and he wrote it to the, the Christian magazine called Guideposts. And he talked about his early life and how his Catholic training, his Catholic formation, never really left him and enabled him to come back to Christ and to the Eucharist in the end. I'm going to read this to you, this letter from Babe Ruth. It's it's extremely powerful. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. Here's Babe Ruth, quote, Bad boy Ruth, that was me. Don't get the idea that I'm proud of my harem scarum youth. I'm not. I simply had a rotten start in life and it took me a long time to get my bearings. Looking back to my youth, I honestly don't think I knew the difference between right and wrong. I spent much of my early boyhood living over my father's saloon in Baltimore. And when I wasn't living over it, I was in it, soaking up the atmosphere. I hardly knew my parents. St. Mary's Industrial School in Baltimore, where I was finally taken, has been called an orphanage and a reform school. It was, in fact, a training school for orphans, incorrigibles, delinquents, and runaways picked up on the streets of the city. I was listed as an incorrigible. I guess I was. Perhaps I, would al- perhaps I always would have been, but for Brother Matthias, the greatest man I have ever known, and for the religious training I received there, which has since been so important to me. I doubt if any appeal could have straightened me out except a power over and above man, the appeal of God. Iron rod discipline couldn't have done it, nor all the punishment and reward systems that could have been devised. God had an eye out for me just as he has for you, and he was pulling for me to make the grade. As I look back now, I realize that the knowledge of God was a big crossroads with me. I got one thing straight, and I wish all kids did, that God was boss. He was not only my boss, but boss of all my bosses. Up until then, like all bad kids, I hated most of the people who had control over me and could punish me. I began to see that I had a higher person to reckon with, who never changed, whereas my earthly authorities changed from year to year. Those who bossed me around had the same self-battles, They, like me, had to account to God. I also realized that God was not only just, but merciful. He knew we were weak and that we all found it easier to be stinkers than good sons of God, not only as kids, but all through our lives. 
end of quote. Okay, this is this is Babe Ruth talking. If you're just tuning in to the Kale Clark Show, triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. I'm sharing Babe Ruth's deathbed letter in which he accounts for his conversion, his reversion to the faith at the end of his life. Okay, back to Babe Ruth here. I, lo- I love the, the, the turn of phrase, too. <laughs> uh, we found it easier to be stinkers. I mean, who talks like that anymore? I love it. Uh, Babe Ruth continues, quote, That clear picture, I'm sure, would be important to any kid who hates a teacher or resents a person in charge. This picture of my relationship to man and God was what helped me was what helped relieve me of bitterness and rancor and a desire to get even. I've seen a great number of he men in my baseball career, but never one equal to Brother Matthias. He stood six foot six and weighed two hundred and fifty pounds. It was all muscle. He could have been successful at anything he wanted to in life, and he chose the church. It was he who introduced me to baseball. Very early he noticed that I had some natural talent for throwing and catching. He used to back me into a corner of the big baseball yard at St. Mary's, and he would bunt a baseball to me every hour, all hour long, correcting mistakes I made with my hands and my feet. I'll never forget the first time I saw him hit a baseball. In 1902, the baseball was a lump of mush, but Brother Matthias would stand at the end of the yard, throw the ball up with his left hand, and give it a terrific belt with the bat he held in his right hand. The ball would carry 350 feet, a tremendous knock in those days. I would watch him bug-eyed, end of quote. I, I just love this. Yes, this was the truly the dead ball era. Home runs were pretty rare. Uh, that changed, of course, over time. But Brother Matthias, actually, he was from Nova Scotia, Canada, my home province. I didn't know that, but in doing some research for this, I found this out. And he was such a powerful influence on the young Babe Ruth, who didn't want to take direction from anybody or anything, but he would listen to Brother Matthias. Let's continue on with what Ruth says in his letter. Quote, Thanks to Brother Matthias, I was able to leave St. Mary's in 1914 and begin my professional career with the famous Baltimore Orioles. By the way, the Orioles were a minor league team back then. Ruth continues, quote, Out of my own, free from the rigid rules of a religious school, Boy, did it go to my head. I really began to cut capers. I strayed from the church, but I don't think I forgot my religious training. I just overlooked it. I just overlooked it. I prayed often and hard, but like many irrepressible young fellows, the swift tempo of living shoved religion into the background. End of quote. And Babe Ruth, during his, his playing career, was well known for partying all night long, but he would still drag himself to Sunday Mass in, in the morning. <laughs> maybe he should have went to confession first, and maybe he did, but but this is what he said. It all went to his head, and he just began living this dissolute life. The swift tempo of living, he said, shoved religion into the background. He continues on, quote, So what good was all the hard work and ceaseless interest of the religious brothers? People would argue. You can't make kids religious, they say, because it just won't take. Send kids to Sunday school, and they too often end up hating it and the church. Don't you believe it? As far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as most kids go, once religion sinks in, it stays there, deep down. The lads who get religious training get it where it counts, in the roots. They may fail it, but it never fails them. 
when the score is against them or they get a bum pitch, that unfailing something inside will be there to draw on. I've seen it with kids. I know from the letters that they write to me. The more I think of it, the more important I feel it is to give kids the works, quote-unquote, as far as religion is concerned. They'll never want to be holy. They'll, they'll act tough in, in contrast, but somewhere inside will be a solid little chapel. It may get dusty from neglect, but the time will come when the door will be opened with much relief. But the kids can't take it if we don't give it to them. I've been criticized as often as I've been praised for my activities with kids on the grounds that what I did was for publicity. Well, criticism doesn't matter. I never forgot where I came from. Every dirty-faced kid I see is another potentially useful citizen. No one knew better than I what it meant not to have your own home, a backyard, your own kitchen, your own icebox. That's why all through the years, even when the big money was rolling in, I'd never forget St. Mary's. Brother Matthias, and the boys I left behind. I kept going back. End of quote. That's true. Uh, Babe Ruth would, would not look for publicity for these things, but he, he gave a lot of money to St. Mary's. And he even bought a Cadillac for Brother Matthias, who unfortunately crashed it, and then he bought him another one. Uh, but he would, he would often visit hospitals and, and visit children, and he didn't want, to be pub- didn't want this activity to be publicized at all. Let's get back to Babe Ruth's deathbed letter. Quote, As I look back, on those moments when I let the kids down. Uh, he's talking about his dissolute lifestyle there. As I look back on those moments when I let the kids down, they were my worst. I guess I was so anxious to enjoy life to the fullest that I forgot the rules or ignored them. Once in a while you can get away with it, but not for long. When I broke training, the effects were felt by myself and the ball team, and even by the fans. While I drifted away from the church, I did have my own altar, if you will a big window in my New York apartment overlooking the city lights. Often I would kneel before that window and say my prayers. I would feel quite humble then. I'd ask God to help me, not make such a big fool of myself, and pray that I'd measure up to what he expected of me. In December of 1946, Babe Ruth continues, I was in French Hospital, New York, facing a serious operation. Paul Carey, one of my oldest and closest friends, was by my bedside one night. He said, they're going to operate in the morning, babe. Don't you think that you ought to put your house in order? I didn't dodge the long, challenging look in his eyes. I knew what he meant. For the first time, I realized that death might strike me out. I nodded, and Paul got up and called in a Catholic chaplain, a priest, and I made a full confession. I'll return in the morning and give you Holy Communion, the priest said, but you don't have to fast. Back then, there was an all-night fast required before a communion in the morning. Babe Ruth said, all fast. He said, I didn't even have a drop of water. It continues, quote, as I lay in my bed that evening, I thought to myself, what a comforting feeling to be free from fear and worries. I now could simply turn them over to God. And later on, my wife brought me a letter from a little kid in Jersey City. Dear Babe, he wrote, Everybody in the seventh grade class is pulling for you and praying for you. I'm enclosing a medal, which, if you wear, will make you better. Signed, your pal, Mike Quinlan. P.S. I know that this will be your 61st homer. You'll hit it. 
Babe Ruth continues, I asked them to pin the miraculous medal of Our Lady to my pajama coat, and I've worn the medal constantly ever since. I'll wear it to my grave. End of quote. Wow, that is a stirring, powerful uh, last testimony from Babe Ruth. And so many, so many things that kind of makes me think about as you're listening to The Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. The power of a true friend, his friend Paul, and how he said, Babe, you really might want to think about getting your, getting your house in order. You know, asking him that question. You know, bringing our friends to confession is one of the, the best things that we could ever possibly do for them. And, and he listened to him. He actually listened to him. And there's so many other things we could think about. Hope for kids who are away from the faith. And I, I really love what, what Babe Ruth said in that letter. He said, don't, basically, don't shy away from catechizing kids. Don't let them make the choice for themselves. Oh, you know, when they grow up, they'll decide whether they want to be Catholic or not. No, no, no. Give them the truth. And he basically said, look, as long as you've given them the fundamentals, you've done your job. He said, they may leave the faith, but the faith will never leave them. God will never leave them. He'll, he'll never leave us. And sometimes we walk away from him. We always do. But God is always there. And so he talked about this interior chapel, or I guess you could say the interior oratory of, of the heart, and, and how that was always kind of there, and he had to open the doors up and, and, and just find God again. And, and, and yeah, just, it was really powerful. Also, the, he realized, I think Babe Ruth was pretty spiritually wise to realize that his holiness, or, or lack thereof, during his playing career when he was just living this, this life of sin, it affected so many other people, not, not just him, but on the human and supernatural levels. He talked about his, his physical health and how it affected that and the way he was living his life. He was told many times by doctors, you have to change your ways. Um, he wasn't exactly spending a million dollars on his body like LeBron James does these days, let's put it that way. Um, Spearing hot dogs. But, but his spiritual health, and it just reminds me of something that uh, St. Jose Maria Escrivá said, the founder of Opus Dei, that, that so many things depend on our correspondence with grace. So many things and so many people are depending on us corresponding with the will of God in our lives and just being online with him. And so, and he realized he, he let not only himself down, he let God down, he let his teammates down, he let the fans down. It was his job. The kids who were looking up to him, he wasn't giving them a good example and he, and he had to atone for that. And so I just thought, this is a really powerful letter about how Babe Ruth came back to faith. And, he, and the, what the world, quote-unquote, offered him was never satisfactory to him. Did he enjoy himself at a, at a human level, at a, at a fleshly level? No, no question. But it didn't satisfy him because he was breaking communion with God. And so just to hear him get that Eucharistic communion at the end, that was, that was just powerful. So I'd love to hear what you think about this. 888-914-9149. Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. We've got to get out and take a quick break right now, but we'll be right back. 
It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. That was the voice of Babe Ruth himself, busting some kids out of school to go play baseball. I love it. I love it. And uh, just before the break, we heard the deathbed testimony, the return to the Catholic faith of George Herman Babe Ruth, who lived a pretty dissolute life. Uh, but the Catholic faith that was instilled in him by Brother Matthias at the St. Mary's School in Baltimore really changed his life. This the, the power of one man, any person to change another's life and to, and to help them find Christ, we can never discount that, how God wants to use each and every one of us. 888 And yeah, we read this powerful letter from Babe Ruth and I might get a call from Peter Atkinson from the Merry Beggars, the entertainment division of Relevant Radio. They might want me to be a character actor in one of their plays. I tried to convince Peter to release an album of my uh, karaoke kale vocal stylings, but uh, he inexplicably declined. I don't know why. But anyways, let's go to the phones right now. 888 Let's go to John in Wisconsin. Hi, John. Hi, Kale. Um, say, I, I am uh, just wondering where... Uh, you got that copy of of um, that testimony. Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, it's still it's still out there on the internet. Um, he wrote into this is a Christian magazine called Guideposts Magazine, and it was published in 1948, uh, the year that he died. Uh, but we've got a link for you, and we will put it in John the show notes. So if you go to relevantradio.com and go to this episode, today's episode, not only can you. Uh, stream it, listen to it again, share it with a friend, but we will also have a link uh, to the article in the show notes, so we'll take care of you there, okay? We Make sure that we've got you covered. I'll also tweet that out later uh, following the show on my Twitter account, if you're on social media, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. So, yes, we will uh, make sure that everybody else can read it. I think it's really powerful. And so many great lessons there uh, that the Bambino shared. 888 And so... Producer Jim, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the choice here. There's a couple couple things. Um, I've got a listener question, an email question about. Remember Flannery O'Connor? Remember that that thing that she said at a party about the Eucharist? We all know that story. Okay. Um, uh, do, you, do should we do this one first, or should we do the the potentially incorrupt nun? I'll let you ch- I'll let you decide. Well, let's go with Flannery O'Connor. Let's go with Flannery first. All right. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So I, I got an email question, and which I'm happy to answer. And this comes to, by the way, you can email the program as well. Uh, the address is kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. If you have a question, comment, uh, something you'd like me to talk about on the show, I'll try to get it on. So Lisa, listening in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on the Relevant Radio app, she says, Hi, Kale. I've heard a lot about what the Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor said very colorfully about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Can you point me to the source? Did she talk about it in one of her books? And uh, this, this is a good good topic, good email for Thursday, because, of course, today, on this day, on a Thursday, on Holy Thursday, uh, this is when Jesus Christ established the Eucharist. And so, i got to confess, uh, confession time here, uh, full disclosure, I, I, I should read more, I should read, I've never read Flannery O'Connor's works. I know a little bit about her life, but I must confess, I've never read the books. I probably should. I, I don't really read fiction I should maybe get back into it. And from time to time, people will say, have you read this book? And no, I haven't. <laughs> I, I, I read a lot of um, nonfiction, but uh, I don't know. I find reality more interesting. But not that, not that oh, I, I don't want to get into that, but um, 
It's probably a bad time to say I've never read Lord of the Rings. I've just lost all my credibility completely. I've seen the movies, though. I've seen the movies. All right, so let's talk about Flannery O'Connor, right? So uh, in answer to your question, Lisa, this event happened, and she talked about it. Not that I read the book, but I did look up the source for you. Uh, You can find this in her book called The Habit of Being, which is actually a collection of letters of Flannery O'Connor. And uh, in 1950, in 1950, she went to a dinner party. And uh, she was kind of like a little unsure of herself at that point. And and this was kind of a a hoity-toity affair, if you will. Uh, The very famous author, Mary McCarthy, uh, was there along with her husband. And at this point, Flannery O'Connor was, she was not exactly the most well-known Catholic author in the United States. Uh, She eventually would be one of the greatest of the 20th century, but she was just kind of getting, kicking off her career. And she was uh, having these conversations, maybe over hors d'oeuvres at the dinner party. And she said this about, about being at the party, quote, having me there was like having a dog present who had been trained to say a few words, but overcome with inadequacy had forgotten them. (laughs) So have you ever felt like that? A dinner party was like, okay, I'm just kind of here as, as an ornament. And as, as the evening drew on, this very intellectual conversation took place, and somehow the topic of the Eucharist was broached. And this famous author, Mary McCarthy, had actually been raised a Catholic, kind of like Babe Ruth, but had walked away from the faith, had, had kind of um, moved on, and, and, and it was not practicing. She said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, she said something to the effect of, I think the Eucharist is a symbol, but as far as symbols go, it's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one, as symbols go. I don't think it's real. I think it's symbolic and not a bad symbol. And apparently it was kind of meant to be a little bit condescending, perhaps, to Flannery O'Connor, who was uh, a believer in the Eucharist, obviously. And so this is what she said. And apparently she was had to muster up her courage to say this. And um, I'm sure it caused a pretty awkward silence at the dinner party. But she said this in response to Mary McCarthy, quote, Well, if it's a symbol... To hell with it. End of quote. Oh, why I never, I can't believe she just said that. At any rate, uh, that was a very famous uh, statement that Flannery O'Connor made. And she was right. She was right. It's not a symbol. It actually is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And so this is what we talk about when we talk about the real presence. And I'm really excited that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is going to be making a big deal of this. They already are, but next year, of course, this Eucharistic Congress, National Eucharistic Congress uh, in Indianapolis in July, and we at Relevant Radio are going to be all over this because we want, as much as anybody does, to get people back to Jesus in the Eucharist. Just like Babe Ruth came back, received that that last communion, if you will, and uh, Flannery O'Connor knew that truth, and, and other Americans need to rediscover this or maybe discover it for the first time. Time. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149 is the number to call. So, Lisa, hopefully that answers your question. And, um, yeah, I should probably, that might be an encouragement to me to actually pick up, take up and read, as St. Augustine said, the works of Flannery O'Connor. All right, let's go back to the phones right now. Let's go to Bob in Chicago. Hi, Bob. Thank you. How are you? Doing well. Doing well, sir. Thanks for calling in. My uncle, who since passed away, he, uh, when he was in eighth grade, he was at uh, it was at Holy Cross Grammar School on the South Side, and um, Christy Walsh was Babe Ruth's agent, and he was he knew the nuns at uh, huh. Holy Cross. So when 
the Yankees came to, would come to town, Babe, uh, Christy Walsh would take Babe Ruth to the school, to the second graders, which was where the nun, he, the nun he knew taught second grade. And every year, he had like the Christy Walsh All-American team, and he'd give the nun a mm-hmm. blanket from the All-American team, football team. Well, anyway, he's bringing Babe Ruth to the school, and the, all the kids are all excited. He's, he's going to come to see the kids. And Christy Walsh comes in, all the kids are jumping out of their desks, and he says to them, <laughs> I got some bad news, kids. Yesterday at Comiskey Park, Babe, Babe was, there's a blind shot against the wall. Babe ran into the wall to make the catch. He made the catch, but he hurt his shoulder. And I said to him, Babe, it's terrible, you know. <laughs> you know we're not going to be able to make it to see those kids. And every kid, the kids are like crying. Their, their faces are like on their desk. And then as soon as he said that, door pops open Babe Ruth jumps through the through the door and says and let those types down from Holy Cross no way and the, <laughs> and the place went up for grass total showman oh and, that's uh, amazing I just I, I my 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 uh uncle God rest so he told that story to the day he died about like how Babe Ruth came to a second grade class and he even gave away his glove to like one of the kids wow and, uh, it just yeah just a uh a, a total showman but he was he was a very charitable man because you were talking about Brother Matthias. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the Babe Ruth Museum, which is right by Camden Yards, and and you can see where he's ri- he ri- he handwrites letters to Brother Matthias, like hey, oh, wow. and he used to bring the Yankees back to St. Mary's, like the entire That's Yankees team back to St. Mary's to like raise money and play like exhibition games there. So uh, I he never forgot where he came from, and I, I know I always pray for the for for people like Elvis and Frank Sinatra. Yep. I just yep. think heaven's Heaven be a fun place if all those people are there, and I, I hope they are. You know, they brought a lot of joy to people. And I, I, I the, the the letter you read about Babe Ruth, I and mean, that was like almost like from a theologian, wasn't it? It was like yeah, it was, uh, you know, the, it was like it was like the, uh, the you know the, um, the the prodigal son coming home, mm-hmm. and you know, and I, I think each of us could relate to that. And uh, I, I really appreciate you sharing. I was I was on the edge of my seat listening to your the show and I, I really appreciate it kill i just wanted to say that and uh god bless and uh, i hope everything's going well oh bob that bob thank you what, what an incredible phone call and and hey thank the babe i mean that yeah he, he was uh, who knew who knew he was a world-class theologian as well as perhaps the greatest baseball player of all time a hall of fame theologian certainly a lot of his experiences were learned by striking out in life a few times and and, and having to dust himself off and and let God dust him off, if you will, with that great confession that he made at the end of his life. And Bob, thank you so much. Yeah, what what an incredible experience that would have been for your uncle. And he never forgot that, obviously, uh, for the rest of his life. And I got to get to the Babe Ruth Museum next time I'm in Baltimore. I've got some uh, really close friends that live in the area. And I remember I went to a a conference for the Society of Biblical Literature, which is kind of like the Bible Geek Convention, if you will. (laughs) And it was at the uh, Baltimore Convention Center. And we could look out through the windows into Canyon Yards because it was right next to it. But I've never seen a game there. It's never seen a game there. It's certainly on my bucket list for sure. And, yeah, you can go to Baltimore and you can see uh, the home of Babe Ruth, where he was born. It's it's a historic site uh, in the Charm City. And uh, Camden Yards, of course. Uh, and the Orioles are good again, which is not good for my Toronto Blue Jays because, uh, man, the AL East is tough. Babe Ruth's Yankees, yeah, they're, they're still pretty good. The Tampa Bay Rays, the Boston Red Sox, the Orioles. Ah, oh, my Jays, they're in, they're, in, they're in tough. They're in tough, I got to tell you. All right, you're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Really appreciate that call, Bob. Got to take a quick break right now, but we'll be right back after this. 888 914 
888-914-9149. On the other side of the break, I'm going to introduce you to maybe the incorrupt nun from America. Stay with me, 888-914-9149. faith and how you can live it and share it too. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome back to the program, 888-914-9149. We've had a fun, fun hour talking about the reversion, the deathbed reversion of Babe Ruth to the Catholic faith. Uh, What a corrective and what a palate cleanser from what's going on out in L.A. with the Dodgers. We also talked about Flannery O'Connor and what she said about the Eucharist. So if you missed any of that, please do download the podcast after the show. Uh, it'll be up uh, just a few minutes after the show. Just keep your eyes peeled on the Relevant Radio app, relevantradio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, and I promised, uh, as, as you're calling in right now, 888-914-9149, I did promise that I would talk about the potentially incorrupt body of an American nun from St. Louis. And I know Producer Jim is really excited about this because uh, uh, she's from his hometown, Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster. And there's a good piece about this uh, in the National Catholic Register by Kelsey Wicks, uh, which just came out. And I don't think it's in God's providence, I don't think it's a coincidence that the same day that the news broke about this hateful, bigoted, anti-Catholic, just disgusting group called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence that are set to be honored by the Los Angeles Dodgers next month, the same day this news broke, the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles, exhumed the body of their foundress on May the 18th. And her name, again, Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster. Now, why, why would they want to do this? Well, this, this is a fairly common practice. Uh, somebody who exhibits holy virtues throughout their life, they, they do kind of check once in a while. I'm assuming they just wanted to check and see if she was incorrupt. And, and she may be. She may be. I, I don't want to go ahead and say that she was, because I don't know. I don't have the competence to judge these matters. But You've probably seen images, and we'll, we'll again post links um, in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. Four years after she died, and she was buried in a very plain wooden coffin, her body was, if she's not incorrupt, she's remarkably well-preserved, let's put it that way. And so Kelsey Wick said that, you know, quickly, of course, as soon as word got out uh, on social media, this became a, a big, big question. Who is this person? Pilgrims started showing up to the monastery, which is located in, in, in rural Missouri. And people are asking questions. Is there going to be an investigation? Are they going to take a scientific look at this? Well, who was she really? I'm going to tell you who Sister Wilhelmina was. She actually founded uh, this order of sisters at the age of 70. So, folks, don't think about retirement. Think about, you know, what, what does God want me to do next? I would say Moses didn't do anything until he was 80. So uh, we got a long track ahead of us, hopefully. And apparently these sisters, and they're, again, this congregation is known as the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of the Apostles. Apparently they're, they're well known for releasing Gregorian chant albums. So I don't know, maybe producer Jim, you can, you can dig up one of their tunes. Apparently chart-topping Gregorian chant, classic Catholic hymns. And let me tell you a little bit about her background. She was the second of five children born in St. Louis on Palm Sunday in 1924. And her birth name was Mary Elizabeth Lancaster. And she she adopted the religious name Wilhelmina uh, when she did her her final vows and grew up in a very pious Catholic home. And 
she had a mystical experience apparently when she was nine years old when she received her first communion. And the abbess, the current abbess of her community said that Sister Wilhelmina saw something, quote-unquote, saw something of Jesus at her first communion. Now, it's hard to to describe what this might have been like. She said, you know, maybe not very clearly, but she somehow saw Jesus, and she said, he was so handsome. He was so handsome. And Jesus said to her in this mystical experience, will you be mine? And she said, apparently, hey, he's so handsome, how can I say no? <laughs> and uh, so this experience happened to her when she was nine years old, and that was kind of the first inklings of her religious vocation to become a nun to essentially become a, a bride of Christ. And when she was 13 years old, her parish priest asked her, have you ever considered becoming a sister? And she said, well, not, not, not consciously, I guess. Not, I never really thought about it explicitly, but, but she, she started thinking about it and she quickly warmed up to the idea and she actually wrote to the Oblate Sisters of Providence in Baltimore. Uh, and she asked, can I join your order? But she was too young at that time, so she had to wait. And the letter apparently uh, shows how clear she was, even at that age of 13. This is what I want. I know what I want. I have a, a total certitude about this. And she wound up, at the end of the day, she, she lived 75 years under, under religious vows as a nun. So clearly it was her vocation. So here, here's, here's a snippet from the letter that she wrote uh, to this order of nuns in Baltimore when she was 13. Quote, Dear Mother Superior, I am a girl 13 years old, and I would like to become a nun. I plan to come to your convent as soon as possible. I will graduate from grade school next month. What I want to know is whether you have to bring anything to the convent and what it is you have to bring. I hope I am not troubling you any, but I have my heart set on becoming a nun. And in brackets, of course I am a Catholic. <laughs> God bless you and those under your command. Respectfully, Mary Elizabeth Lancaster. End of quote. That was a beautiful, beautiful letter. And uh, I just love that. You know, she's not, she's just finishing up grade school and she's like, I want to do this. I want to come to the convent as soon as I can. What do I have to bring? Do I have to bring anything? Do I have to bring a toothbrush? Not sure, but I'll, I'll be there. If you'll take me, I'll be there. Unfortunately, um, in, in her, in her experience growing up, she, she did unfortunately have to deal with segregation and she was, um, she was African American and she was often taunted by other kids and she was ridiculed also for being Catholic. Uh, a lot of her schoolmates were Baptists or Methodists, and uh, they were really hard on her for her Catholic faith. There, there was and still is a lot of anti-Catholicism in America, obviously, as we've seen with the Dodgers debacle. And uh, Philip Jenkins, I'm reminded of the, the, the great work by, he's not even Catholic, Philip Jenkins, I believe he's an Anglican, but he, he wrote the book called The New Anti-Catholicism, The Last Acceptable Prejudice. And how true that is. Uh, and, and he wrote that a few years ago. It's become even more so now. When uh, the local Catholic high school became segregated under Christian brothers, and it seemed like uh, her parents might put her in the public school, but they didn't. They went to great efforts to ensure that, um, that she would still, along with her schoolmates, could keep going with their Catholic education. And Sister Wilhelmina said in her biography that, quote, my parents did not want me to go to the public high school. So they got to work, and they founded St. Joseph's Catholic High School, which lasted until Archbishop Ritter put an end to segregation in the diocese, end of quote. So St. Joseph's School was for African Americans, um, and once segregation ended, it was, uh, it was opened up, of course. And so she graduated as valedictorian of that school that her parents helped to get going 
And that's when she entered the Oblate Sisters of Providence. And there was actually, at the time, there were only two religious orders for black or Hispanic women, and that was one of them. And she stayed with those sisters for 50 years. And eventually God kind of moved her to, to start this, this new order. But this is what happened. Obviously, she, was, uh, she grew up during the... She, be, oh, she, she became a young... I know she was pretty young, but, but she lived through the post-Vatican II period when there's a lot of confusion in the church, obviously, and especially with, with nuns and, and in, in religious life. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of her sisters literally kicked the habit. They stopped wearing their habits, but she didn't want to. And she went to great lengths to keep her habit. And Mother Cecilia said, quote, she spent so many years fighting for the habit because she took it seriously that the habit signifies the woman who wears it as a bride of Christ. And so what she did was she created a habit for herself. She wrote about this in her biography. She, she made it partially out of a plastic bottle of, of, of laundry bleach because her sisters didn't have habits. They got rid of them all. I'm going to make my own. And, and, and this is wild. This is wild. Apparently, this homemade habit saved her life because when she was teaching in Baltimore, uh, a student that she was teaching wanted to kill her, obviously didn't like what she was saying and teaching, and so went after her with a knife and tried to stab her in the neck. But this high-necked collar, which was part of her, her habit, basically deflected the blade. How dramatic is that? And so... Uh, another time, uh, one of her other sisters, uh, religious sisters, who had stopped wearing her habit, passed her in the hallway and said, are you going to wear that thing all the time? And Sister Wilhelmina said, yes, I am Sister Wilhelmina. I have a hell of a will, and I mean it. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that moxie. So anyway, so she heard, she heard after many, many years, she tried to get her order to, to get back to wearing habits. They wouldn't do it. And she heard about the priestly fraternity of St. Peter and how they were starting up a group of sisters. She's like, ah, this is appealing to me. So she looked into it and that's when she kind of rediscovered the Latin mass, came to love it, according to Mother Cecilia. And then when she was 70 years old, she packed up her stuff and went to found this community, this new community, total leap of faith, um, as Mother Cecilia said, and at a very advanced age, too. And so in 1995, with the help of a member of the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, that's how they started the community. And they became contemplatives, very Marian in their outlook. And one of their big things that they, that they did was pray for priests. And this is a good day to do this for all of us because it's Thursday. It's not only the day that Jesus instituted the Eucharist, but the day that he instituted the priesthood as well at the Last Supper, the first Mass. So this, this is kind of kind of the background. They, they went... Obviously, her new order, they were certainly wearing habits. Uh, they had a common purse, um, traditional, very traditional, living this, this life together uh, as sisters. And so they began in Scranton, Pennsylvania. They followed the rule of St. Benedict. They would chant the divine office in Latin. And Bishop Robert Finn, in 2006, extended an invitation to them to come to the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph in Missouri. And so... That's how, how it kind of happened. Uh, Our Lady of Ephesus, the Abbey of Our Lady of Ephesus, was consecrated in 2018. Uh, Mother Abbess Cecilia was the first abbess. Sister Wilhelmina was under her authority. And then in 2019, seven sisters left the Abbey to start a daughter house, which is called the Monastery of St. Joseph in Ava, Missouri. So they're, they're still around today. They're, they're cutting albums. <laughs> they are 
uh, partaking in the extraordinary form of the Mass. Uh, they use the 1962 monastic office, traditional Gregorian chant, uh, when they pray, and they're, they're really devoted to Our Lady. And so apparently her last words, Sister Wilhelmina, she was really suffering, and it was kind of unresponsive, but um, her last conscious words apparently were, O Maria. They were, they were singing, O Sanctissima, and, and, and she just loved that. And so what happened was, um, when, they, when they sang those words, O Maria, she kind of came alive a little bit and opened her eyes. And the abbess said uh, to EWTN, quote, Her death was beautiful. God arranged everything. We were singing, Jesus, my Lord, my God, my all, when we got to the rest of the song where it says, Had I but Mary's sinless heart with which to love thee with, oh, what joy. She opened her eyes and looked up. She had been comatose. We knew that she could hear us, but she was just not responsive at all for a couple of days. And then she just looked up at us with this face full of love. And the abbess said, it seemed like she was already in heaven at that time. So what, what, a, what a powerful life and, and a hidden life. There's so many hidden lives of, of saints, saints who are among us. So I just love the story about St. Wilhelmina Lancaster. And is she incorrupt? They're going to be investigating this, of course. We leave this to the judgment of the competent authorities. But uh, I thank Kelsey Wicks for writing that article. And we'll again post that, post that as well in the show notes, as, along with the letter, the deathbed letter from Babe Ruth. So, wow. That is, that is great stuff. That is great stuff. And so, again, the timing, I don't, I don't think, is a coincidence at all to find out about uh, this American nun who, who had to endure a lot. Uh, in her life, a lot of anti-Catholic prejudice herself and as she was growing up. And uh, she might be incorrupt. Um, and we'll just, uh, again, try to imitate that kind of faith. And so thanks for listening to the Kale Clark Show today on this Thursday. Really appreciate all of you. Jim Shaper produced. Young Thomas on the phone today. Uh, Patrick Alag, I think, is back tomorrow. So uh, we will uh, certainly be chatting with him as we get back to it. Hey, keep it locked on Relevant Radio. Don't forget... Uh, coming up next is Trending with Timory and the Family Rosary Across America with Father. Father Simon is guest hosting tonight. Oh, that's fantastic. So uh, uh, wildly entertaining and, and a, just a great, great priest and a great guy overall, Father Simon. So definitely call in. You would love to hear from you, your prayer requests on the Family Rosary Across America at 7 p.m. Central, only here on Relevant Radio. God bless everybody. Good night. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.